Uh, good morning. I'm uh, Kimberly, and uh, I've been asked to do the scripture reading this morning, so here we go. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Well, morning, everybody. Good to see you this morning. I'm Shannon. I'm on staff here at church. Um, and I'm responsible for a lot of the business of the church, for knocking over guitars, things like that, creating havoc. So, uh, and I get to uh, speak with you a little bit about Ephesians this morning. Um, James uh, has had a tough week with the uh, passing of his father and uh, needed some time to be able to, to spend with his family. So um, I'm filling in for him this morning, and uh, Lord willing, he'll be back next week, uh, next Sunday. So um, uh, Kimberly read through Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 for us, um, and, and my goal this morning is to uh, do some justice to this passage where we examine the dynamic of sin in humanity and also remind us of the surpassing goodness and grace of God through all of that. So um, if you've got your Bibles with you, feel free to open them up. Um, but Paul has just finished explaining in chapter 1 of Ephesians God's actions towards his son Jesus. Um, and he describes who he is to us, um, where Jesus is, what his role is after the resurrection. And he takes us back to the very beginning of everything and brings us into the understanding of God's most original intentions. And that is the design for our purpose and our relationship that he destined before we were ever even created. Um, it, it is a great opening chapter um, and sets the stage for what we're going to build on next um, and what is in chapter 2 on what God had planned, on what Jesus did to fulfill that plan. And so now he turns to us, the readers, and says, as for you. So in this next section, Paul starts to paint a picture of life. And it, in his picture here, he, he has this dichotomy, these two different worlds, and we're going to examine this a little bit. Um, one is a world without God, and he digs into that significantly, but then he contrasts that with what this world looks like with God. Um, so you've got these two distinct pictures, world without God, world with God. Um, when I was a kid... Um, I actually had some of that dynamic going on in the way that I approached my dad. Um, uh, he is a character. He is an interesting guy. He's full of creativity and fun and vibrancy, uh, but he's also a very critical and impatient and harsh man, too. Um, I know my grandma used to refer to him as a snip. I don't know what that is, <laughs> but I assume that it's not great. Um, if any of that sounds familiar, there may be a little bit of a family resemblance here, too. Um, but oftentimes, I would imagine being on my own, independent 
of him making my own choices and decisions free of, at least as I saw it, his tyrannical authority. Um, And I would imagine life away from him. Uh, But like many of us, when he was actually withdrawn or unavailable, I yearned and longed for a word from him. I longed for his approval, for his satisfaction in me, for the things that I'd done, for who I was. Um, and I was lost without some of his guiding influence. So there was this strange dichotomy of the world with him that I ima- or without him that I imagined and the world with him. I remember one particular time, uh, this particular episode, um, with my brother and some BB guns. Um, I don't know why you're laughing. It's n- not a funny story. Um, now, um, I may be one of those people that delights a little bit in the misery of others. Um, and uh, I, did, I did enjoy a good torment of my siblings now and then. So uh, we lived up in the woods. My brother and I uh, would often pal around through the woods um, with our gun, BB guns exploring, being adventurous. Um, one of the main rules we had with our BB guns, uh, and my dad was adamant about this, is you do not point a gun at another person. You always act as if it's loaded. You don't point it at another person. I mentioned before that I like to torment my siblings. So what did young Shannon do? Um, He loved to point that BB gun at his brother um, just to make him crazy. Now, my brother was a rule follower, so um, that was breaking a rule and caused him no end of angst. Um, I wasn't going to shoot my brother. I didn't want to hurt him or injure him, um, at least not in a lasting way. Um, (laughs) But I did find much pleasure in um, his torment. So I would point the gun at him, and of course, being a rule follower, what came next was him running to my dad to tell on me. Um, she ended up pointing the BB gun at me. Were you pointing the BB gun at your brother? Yes. But I wasn't going to shoot him. All good, valid excuses. Um, and in my dad's anger over disobedience and actually pointing a gun at my brother, he took the BB gun um, that he had right nearby him and actually bent it over his knee. Um, yeah, terrible overreaction, right? Um, <laughs> no, the worst thing was that that was actually my brother's BB gun. <laughs> <laughs> but in, in some ways it was worse because then I had to give my BB gun to my brother um, to make up for it. So um, that was an end of that kind of adventuring. Um, and I remember walking away from that and uh, holing up somewhere in my house and just stewing over that and the anger that I had at my dad um, that he would go so far. Um, And I I would go to this fantasy place of, you know, if it wasn't for my dad, things would have been just fine. If it wasn't for the way that he overacted, him taking that gun away from me, life would be great. I'd still be playing, but my brother and I would be fine. Um, Life would have been so much better if he wasn't around to enact his authority. Um, Ephesians 2 draws on this particular viewpoint. We're shown what the story of our lives would be like without God. And later we contrast that with a picture of what the real context is, what he's actually using his power, God's power and authority to do. So if you don't mind, I'd love to kind of work through this passage piece by piece. 
Um, But before we get into uh, verse 1, would you pray with me? Father, I stand before you as someone who um, just isn't unable to do justice to the truths and uh, the amazing depth that you have here. Uh, So, Lord, I ask for an outpouring of your spirit that uh, your words would flow through me, that you would work in the hearts of each and every one of us here uh, as we examine your word, as we take it in, as we wrestle with it, uh, Lord, in the ways that you call us to uh, bigger and greater things. Um, Father, I pray for your presence here with us, knowing that you are already here. Uh, We lift up this time to you in your son's name. Amen. All right, so Ephesians 2.1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. As I read that, I think of zombies. Anybody else? <laughs> the Walking Dead. Zombies became really popular in the 70s and in terms of uh, pop culture and media, they're everywhere. Uh, They're waning a little bit right now, but there are so many movies and shows having to do with zombies. And there is this absolute appeal for zombies as this kind of end of the world scenario, right? Humanity that's transformed into the living dead. Pleasureless, um, there's just mindless consumption and shambling aimlessly from one place to another by these creatures. And in the dynamic of a world like this, um, there's this dawning of this idea that zombies aren't even the greatest threat uh, in this apocalyptic view. Other people are, and there's an eerie reality to that as well. But the illustration, it goes even further, that the undead, these zombies, those living in the infection of the world, are, as the Bible describes, dead in sin, doomed to a faint shadow of life. Um, And those that aren't infected, and in this illustration, those that still have life, uh, Christian believers, are unfortunately in as much danger as many of the zombies um, and have as many of the same issues as the zombies. Uh, Dr. Mark Roberts, in his commentary on Ephesians, addresses this a little bit. Um, He says, Ephesians 2 speaks to the walking dead among us. It resonates with those who, though physically alive, are missing real life. In language that's both foreign yet strangely familiar, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, describes the deadly life that many of us know all too well. Even if, because we are Christians, we are no longer completely dead in our sins, we still walk according to the lethal ways of this world. We still feel demonic power drawing us into toxic behaviors. We choose what we know to be harmful in order to gratify our desires. In essence, a living death, even as believers. It says we are dead in sin. So taking a step back just for a second, let's kind of define things here. Um, if, if you're new to the faith or new to church, what is sin? Um, it says your transgressions and sin. Transgression and sin are nearly synonymous. They're almost the same thing. Transgression is often, though, translated as trespassing. Um, and Pastor Steve, if you know him and have heard of any of his, his former messages, He loved the word uh, trespassing for sin because it's uh, defined by going where we shouldn't go. And I think that's a reasonable definition. We think of sin as doing bad, but really it's, um, in in God's view, it's um, anything outside of his design is sin. So when we choose our own path and it veers from his, that's sin. 
we're called dead. And that, in this passage, it's talking about all of us. Um, it's not singling out non, the non-Christian, the skeptic, or the unbeliever, and we'll talk about that a little further on. So there's, there's a couple different ways, as I kind of wrestle with this and extrapolate this, there's several ways that this dead and sing language gets taken, in my view. Um, and the first um, is that it strikes a chord with our own self-assessments. Um, like me, you've probably tried Indelsi on, on your own to craft a perfect world for yourself. Um, I know that I have. Um, I am a little bit of a controller. I like things the way that I like them, and if things actually happened the way that I planned in my head, life would be great. But even in that, I'm faced with constant evidences of brokenness um, and a brokenness of the world apart from God. Uh, on a personal level, level, I see my decisions leading to pain, the things that I do leading to broken relationships, dysfunction, bad decisions that lead to unforeseen consequences. The choices that I make often have deep and terrible thoughts behind them and deep and terrible actions, and we all tend to harbor these things. So oftentimes, when we hear about being dead in sin, we say, yeah, I, I can actually see that even born out in my own life, and I can agree with that diagnosis. Another way that dead in sin language might get taken is we just reject the premise altogether. Things aren't that dire, um, or the bad in the world that we see around us, it's actually a result of the environment in, right? Um, it's because of poverty, uh, power differentials, um, people that might be misguided or mistaken, um, or people that have been victimized and can't help but um, act out in ways that bring in bad. There's this idea that um, we aren't dead in sin, that we're actually capable of morality and we're capable of fulfillment without God. We see that there actually is good in the world. There are beautiful things. And um, we reason that, yeah, it's not all that bad. Um, And the third principle, I think, that comes into play for many of us is that we tend to think of sin in the personal Uh, We tend to relate it directly to us. And let me explain this one a little bit because uh, there's some nuance to it. Um, My brother, um, he was a state trooper for many years. Um, And uh, I did mention he was a rule follower, right? Um, uh, He, in particular, sees the world through through a lens of his daily evidences. He interacts with bad guys all day long. So when he looks out at the world, guess what he sees? Bad guys. Um, uh, we'll be driving along the freeway, and in any section, he'll, be, he'll, he'll let me know oh, how many of the people out there are, are drunk drivers right now, and how many of the people that we can see actually have suspended licenses. Um, it's a terrible way to look at the world, and yet, honestly, um, it's borne out in truth in the way that he operates. Um, there are a lot of those things, but his lens helps define his view of the world. And the same can be true uh, even with a biblical view or a ministry view. For me, um, I often see the world in terms of the hurt and the issues that people share with me in vulnerability. Um, They're either seeking to be seen, listened to, or helped. 
and I extrapolate those out to the larger, larger society. So we, just, we look at sin through our own lens. We focus on the personal aspect of sin, um, the experience we have, the people we know, and we judge the world accordingly. But it's more than just that personal aspect of sin uh, that we see. What we're talking about here in this dead to sin language is that, that sin is an entire world system. It's so much more than our narrow sliver of roller and thinking. Um, in the beginning of this passage, we see ourselves in the world in its most real. There's a pervasive darkness, a place devoid of God inf- God's influence. So sin is not just a single act, individual choices and consequences. It is so much more than that in what Paul is describing here. It is a world order. It's a power of evil dominating our perspectives and actions. It's an evil realm that we live in, influencing even the good things that we desire. It's a corrupt system that we're subject to. We're living in it. We're immersed in it. If you look at it this way, this worldview actually can address some important raised questions. And I just have a couple of questions that help frame this in terms of a larger scope. As how does a nation seeking prosperity, security, respect, good things, end up injuring other nations and its own people? How do well-meaning people become distorted with something like racism? Why does materialism have such a deep grip on modern society? How do needs become cravings? How does something good like sex become so distorted as to be idolatrous? In this world system, good is distorted and leaves God out of the picture, which is what it always does. So sin is personal and individual, but it's also corporate. And for us as a group, it's a consent to a manipulative age without God. This world order, this godless system, it's pervasive, and it becomes the context and understanding in which we live. We become deadened to it because of its constancy. Uh, It's like the frog in the pot, um, where it doesn't recognize its environment because the environment seems normal, even as it does damage to it. Um, In the personal nature of sin, it loses its, uh, its edge, um, I'm sorry, um, this, this pervasive idea of sin, we become uh, immune to it, um, and it loses the edge that the personal nature of sin and wrong and brokenness that we can experience highlights. So where I can see the damage done by the lie that I told, um, and it has an edge of conviction to it, in terms of the larger context we live in, when we're comparing ourselves to the world, it's easy for that to become not a big deal. But living in sin is choosing to operate in accordance with a world order that encourages and produces a self-centered, sin-filled identity. Sinful desires and reasonings control that person. And for Christ followers, there's a problem of overlap of worlds. There's a new world in which Jesus reigns, but we're still immersed in the reality of the realm with which we live, and those three things overlap. Romans 3 sets a picture of what this world system looks like. Uh, Romans 3, 10 through 18 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. 
all have turned away. They've altogether become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul quotes here from the Psalms, Ecclesiastes, and Isaiah, and is putting an exclamation point on the impact of a world without God, a world in which we are dead in sin, the walking dead. Let's look at verse 2 for a second. We talked about the transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. And it mentions used to live. Um, And living um, in a godless world um, sounds uh, a little too passive, right? We can just stay there and things happen around us. But literally this phrase um, in its translation, used to live, can literally be in which you used to walk, where it's no longer a passive thing, but you're actively participating in it. Now, this particular verse raises a number of different questions for the curious. Who or what causes sin? Who or what is the ruler, the spirit that's described? We'll touch on it a little bit, but there is so much more than even what I can explain here. But, but just to touch on it, there's the classic excuse for the wrong things we do. The devil made me do it. You might have heard the story about the little girl who was disciplined by her mom for kicking her brother in the shins and pulling his hair. Sally said her mother, why'd you let the devil make you kick your little brother and pull his hair? And she answered her mom, the devil made me kick him, but pulling his hair was my idea. (laughs) People sin under this ruler, or as we know him, the devil, People sin under the devil's influence, but they also sin on their own. In verse 2, Paul clearly states that there is a character encouraging sin, evil, and wrong. That's a real thing. The devil, Satan, is described in the New Testament. In John, he's called the prince of this world. In Matthew, the prince of demons. 2 Corinthians 4, the god of this age. He is real and is named in the Bible these ways. These are sobering titles. But it is easy for us to get caught up in the power and influence and malevolence of the devil. The Bible actually never presents a dualism that somehow God and the devil are equals wrestling for the control of humanity. It's never framed that way. There is only one supreme being, and that's God. The devil, The devil is an influencer, but does not carry the same power as God does. In this verse, it actually, instead of magnifying the role of this illegitimate ruler, it just underscores our former plight, the situation that we were in, in sin without God. Just like the story about Sally, we're pretty good at choosing wrong on our own. We don't need a whole lot of the devil's help. This enemy has its own particular skill in accentuating the weaknesses that we don't deal correctly with. So the premise from verse 1 is still on my mind, that dead in sin. There's an external threat to us, working disobedience, but that evil, 
that godlessness, it's already inside of us and it's doing its work there, just like those zombies infected into the walking dead. So our zombie cells already harbor the virus that also created the devil. Uh, the NIV application commentary addresses the internal and external temptations that we have. A kind of blindness makes appropriation of this text difficult. It says that we live in keeping with the world and its ruler, but we're deluded into believing we determine ourselves. We tell ourselves we're not susceptible to peer pressure, that we do what we want without ever asking what or who determines our wants. And the truth is, we determine our direction within the context of this world without God. And this ruler, he's working within the same world and has aligned himself in that same way. So my takeaway is be on guard, be on the lookout. The virus within us has an ally that works against us as well. Moving on to Ephesians 2, 3. Uh, The first part. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Uses the phrase flesh. Um, And that, in its Greek, is the sinful nature. Uh, it's more, more correctly translated as sinful nature. It's our tendency toward our own path apart from God. Uh, theologian, author, and teacher, uh, Dr. Kyle, um, Klein Snodgrass has an excellent description here. He says, Paul uses flesh in various ways in his letters, usually with negative ethical connotations as here. It usually refers to that which leaves God out of the picture that which is merely human and left to its own devices. Implicit is the thought that without God, desires are the Lord in control. They must be gratified and followed. In the former life, we lived by our sinful desires, doing whatever they told us. Cravings and desires refer to legitimate human needs that are distorted, subverted, and heightened to produce an irrational self-centeredness. Once again, Paul focuses on the mind. The former life is marked by a misaligned reasoning process that causes people to do what the sinful nature says. This world system without God, our enemy, and our own flesh are all working in harmony to set the stage for our destruction. The second half of 2-3. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That phrase, deserving of wrath. What is God's wrath? Wrath is not just God's anger, it's also his judgment, judgment of sin. What kind of system is this that we're talking about here? Um, I've heard a number of different wrestlings with the idea of God's judgment. Um, And I think there's a few common wrestlings, and, and if you would bear with me as we walk through these a little bit. Um, one thing I've heard is um, in, in dealing with and understanding judgment of sin, um, this one I've heard, the church makes me feel shame about myself in order to then bring about a fix for my problems. Uh, meaning that there's manipulated shame and grace for self-serving purposes, at least on the part of the church. Or that God created me to be the way that I am. He knit me together in my mother's womb but then he condemns me because of it. And I understand that that seems unfair. 
But I think there's a few points that need to be made here. Assumptions that those things are based on, uh, assumptions that impact those statements. And the first assumption when, when questioning this, this system that God has, uh, God's right to judge, his right to wrath, um, the first is that God isn't or shouldn't be the one who determines justice or rightness. Um, the Bible calls his rightness righteousness. The second God isn't good and isn't capable of judging without an unfair bias. And the third, I'm actually justified in my actions and God's either too small or doesn't see it or he simply doesn't care about the justifications. Um, And at its heart, this rejection of God is in line with an embrace of the way that the world has been described in those first three verses that a system's been set up that forces us into a predetermined submission or judgment. And I understand there, there's a consistency in believing that there is no God and then living as if he has no authority. That does make sense. But most often, and within the church walls, for us, we acknowledge God with our mouths and then live out our own authority in our lives. If God created from the very beginning, if he created us, and if what is stated is true, that he made us with a purpose, isn't he rightfully the one to create the standards also that we're supposed to be lived and judged by? If those things are true, he's right in bringing his wrath to bear on those that reject him, and particularly reject the goodness and the grace that he's extended that is his due. I think back to the story about my dad, um, and I often rejected his God-given ability to provide boundaries for me and correction, even if ultimately it was for my good. So like I stated before, I would fantasize about a world in which I wasn't responsible to him anymore. I had this tiny focused view of this system that I was subject to, It was unfair because I didn't get to do what I wanted to do. I didn't get to align things in the way that I thought the world should work, at least the world that I lived in at that moment. I didn't like my consequences. I didn't want to acknowledge my dad's ability to determine what was just. Now, to make things even harder, he's human and also prone to failure just like the rest of us. But I often thought he was punishing me excessively compared to others. I would even take it so far as to think he loved my brother and sister more than me. And it was easier to wish him out of my independence than embrace a system that caused me discomfort and displeasure. Think feelings and thoughts like that, not surprisingly, um, I mean, I harbored some of those things all the way into adulthood. My narrow perspective was based solely on my own perceived good. But there was something that changed a little bit of that. Um, My narrow perspective had to broaden when I became a dad too and could see a different perspective. I hadn't ever thought about a broader view of the situation because I was so self-focused. I was faced with a new context and now... It was intensely relevant in providing 
safety, security, instruction, and love to my own boys, who probably thought and still think many of the same things I did about my dad. Regardless of the acknowledgement that we have of our authorities, regardless of our need or desire for independence, or an avoidance of discomfort and the consequences of our actions, regardless of our insistence on our own will, on our desires for the world that we've constructed, we're still subject to the rules and the system of the one who created it. God has the right and authority to set the standards, to judge, to bring his wrath to bear on those whom he wishes. And that can look so unfair when we stare so intently through our own microscope We need to expand the context and see the larger picture. Yes, we live in a system that operates without God. It's broken. It's ugly. But behind that, he's always been working for our good and to repair what's broken. That self-focus colors how we see that world with God. We know that the world without God is broken. We see the effects of that every day. But the world with God, we can misperceive through our own desires and pleasures or lack of them. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 flips the picture. But, do you remember the But God series? This was the pivotal moment. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. We have that ugly picture of life, of the world that Paul has painted here that we all know and understand. And in some ways we have this picture of God that can be tainted by our own wants and desires. But we have to erase that and see this through the larger context. We are made alive. We can levy accusations against God's goodness. We can desire our own independence. But his system, this God-given system, is in total contrast to the world, the devil, and even our own nature. Because it's based on, not himself, it's based on love and mercy. It isn't self-centered, it's other-centered. It's me-centric, it's you-centric. God is merciful. Instead of that wrath that's described, he redeemed us with Jesus. That wrath is a possibility. It's present. He has the right to do that. But he withheld our deserved consequences, that death and separation, and instead he forgave us. It is by grace you've been saved and that, from that awful world system. Grace is unmerited favor. We didn't deserve it, but he gave it anyway. You are kept from the punishment you've deserved and have been given something you never could have earned. And it calls God's mercy rich. James touched on this a few messages ago. God has an abundance of it. He can lavish it on us. And that also means that you, whoever that is, me, In my unworthiness, I can still access it. He has enough 
and he hasn't forgotten me. Dr. Snodgrass, again, has some great things to say in digesting this. That God loves and shows mercy is a truism. The problem is that we either take God's love for granted with no impact on our lives, or we reject that God could love someone as sinful or as insignificant as we are. The good news is the God, that God knows how bad things are, but he changes them. Where wrath should have come, mercy comes instead. Awareness of the enormity of the plight helps prevent taking God's love for granted. But the love of God must be appropriated individually. This is why Paul emphasized the wealth of God's mercy and love. His resources for loving are not limited, and his love extends even to the least deserving. It doesn't matter what I think about myself, it extends to me. He finds me worthy enough to change the whole dynamic. This is further illustrated and capped off in Paul's letter to the Romans. He says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through through whom we have now received reconciliation. Again, we saw that picture of a world devoid of God and the ugliness that comes from that, the judgment that is part of that. And the world with God looks entirely different because he has flipped it. We are made alive. We no longer have to shamble like zombies, the walking dead, looking for brains. We can recognize the backdrop to this godless world and embrace the new life that Jesus has for us. Is that the context that you live in? Is that reality of reconciliation in view for you? I like to call the worship team back up to help close us out with worship. We're in a series talking about living and loving like Jesus. And we'll get to more of how we live and love like him. But right now we get to see this backdrop, this context for what Paul has talked about, this ugly world that we live in, the judgment that comes with that, and then recognizing who God is, what he's done for us through Christ, with Christ. We're all well aware of that world system that we live under. We see, them, see it every moment, every day, in the corruption and the effect of living in our flesh. So maybe, maybe right now you're actively choosing to narrow your vision and only see the constraints of God's authority. Maybe you, like me, want your independence and want to be respo- not want, don't want to be responsible to someone else's rules or judgment. Maybe you just want to be free to make your own choices without the burden of a larger or even eternal consequences. 
And then they ask you, what's at the root of those desires? Is it your own flesh, that sinful nature that we talked about? Are you pursuing what you want, giving into yourself? Is the system of the world that's rejected God, is that, is that the system you're living under? Are you simply responding to the, what the world says is normal and good? Are you allowing the enemy of God, that illegitimate ruler of the system, to influence your way to your own nature that you would prefer? Are you harboring things that give the devil a foothold to twist those areas? However you might have answered to those things, um, I would challenge you today. Would you do something? Would you surrender to God? Not as some cosmic bully, but a God who loves you and wants to approach you as his son or daughter. Would you surrender? Would you admit to God the ways that you don't want his authority or his plan? And if the answer to those things has already been yes and you're there, would you spend some time praying and praising God for his goodness, his grace, and his mercy? Thanks.